Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. This is one of those days where we check our bank balance and our credit cards because Apple has just released new stuff, uh, new iPads, a new Apple TV, and I got to say, there's nothing I want to buy. Well, let's back up. There's always something I want to buy, but I'm really happy that there's nothing that I need to buy, especially last year because I said the same thing. Last year, I was like, you know what? My iPad Pro is – it's fine. It's good. But then they announced the iPad Pro with the M1 processor. And so I thought, well, okay, this could be good, especially, you know, because we both write about this. That could be a good possibility. And then I saw that I could get some money if I traded mine in. And I said, okay, I'm going to get the iPad Pro and that's it. That's it for the year. And then they came out with the M1 Max MacBook Pros at the end of the year. And I said, no, 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 I'm perfectly fine. And look at what I'm staring at right now. It's, it's a brand new M1 MacBook Pro. So I, I have a really bad track record of saying, nope, I don't need anything. But I'm with you. None of these things so far are super compelling precisely because I'm you know, less than a year or about a year back in generation. Yeah, I have the same M1 MacBook Pro, the 11-inch like you. I think you bought yours a month or two after I did. It's pretty much the same as the new one. The new one has an M2 processor, but given what we do, unless you're editing photos or shooting 4K video, then it really doesn't make that much of a difference. One of the big differences with the new models is it does 4K ProRes video, and that's like a professional thing. And Apple did a little 10-minute video that shows the kind of video that they do in there. Uh, new Apple events, and it shows the new iPad, and they showed someone on a set filming with the iPad Pro in a bracket and stuff. And but we're not. I mean, you film your kid, I film my cats. We don't need ProRes <laughs> RAW 4K 30 frames per second for that. But to be fair, what I've seen reported is that um, the cameras are the same, the hardware is the same. It's just essentially the processor. So there's not that much of a difference. So mine's a year and a half old. Yours is a little bit less. We can easily go another generation. And the one, the generation that we bought, the M1, was the first change, wasn't it? With the sort of edge-to-edge display, USB-C, et cetera. So it, was it? No, or no. Did they already have that? The, the generation prior to that had the edge-to-edge and the USB-C, but it was still an Intel processor. and it was perfectly fine. No, 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 no Intel processors in, in iPad. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Not Intel. You're right. You're right. Oh, my gosh. I'm so sorry. It was an A processor. <laughs> Tim Cook's going to visit my house and hit me on the head. <laughs> <laughs> it was an A processor, not an M processor. Right. So it was still a, a perfectly good machine. And to be honest, buying the M1, I, I had some regrets about it because it wasn't that much of a a leap forward. And so I would suspect that going from my M1 to an M2 would also not be a huge leap forward unless you're just really looking at the specs. But that's the thing about the iPads and the iPad Pros. The specs don't matter as much because of the software not fully taking advantage of it. I mean, this, this is kind of an old story about, about the iPads and iPad OS. 
And I'm curious to see what the new version of iPadOS, uh, which should be out by the time this episode airs. It's due to be released on the 24th, and this episode is due to be released on the 29th, I think. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've I've been using the beta, and it's 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 fine. It's not a huge huge leap. Now, where you really get a great advantage is if you've been holding on to an iPad or an iPad Pro that's like three four years old, or maybe even you know even five or six years old. Um, my kids using my old iPad Pro, which is now I think maybe five years old, and that one is starting to kind of show glitches and stuttering on some of the games, uh, things like that. When you think about it, only five years, and it was a pro iPad. Yeah. Only five years. I had an iPad mini fourth generation, which I kept for at least that long. The iPad mini was relatively cheap back then, and it didn't have a lot of power. And I was using it in the kitchen just to watch the news when I eat lunch and things like that, or to keep recipes on for when I'm cooking. But it was starting to show some weakness. Five years seems like not that long. I mean, we're used to keeping a Mac for five years, but maybe now with the M processors, it'll last a little bit longer. Because an iPad Pro from five years ago, well, you can't really call it Pro anymore, can you? <laughs> well, you can call it that, but <laughs> it's... Well, you can call it retired, sent back to the farm teams or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's worth noting, though, that in the new iPad Pros, there's very little um, that's really useful. There's this new Apple Pencil Hover. The device can detect the Apple Pencil from 12 millimeters away. And you were saying before we started recording, if you're an artist, maybe you want to use that. And it's true that it kind of shows you where your brush is going to be before you commit. Mm -hmm. And I can see that. And we'll talk a bit uh, later about Lightroom and masking. I can see that as a useful tool when you're editing photos um, to have that sort of pre-visualization. But even then, you can always just undo what you've selected. Uh, when you're working on an iPad relatively easily. Yeah, yeah. I think it's definitely one of those small changes that for a small number of people, it'll be fantastic. And it's also one of those Apple things where they know that they could do this and then they can turn it into a marketing point. And for the people who really use the Apple Pencil a lot, yeah, this is this is a great thing. I don't know. Our audience, when you're you're editing uh, photos on an iPad, uh, yeah, it's great. If that was the only thing that was compelling me to buy this, I don't think I would. I don't really do much photo editing on the iPad. Well, that's part of the question is how much are you going to use these devices for something like photo editing? Yeah. My, my iPad Pro, I used to watch videos. Mm -hmm. um, I use my workflow in writing articles is to write my first draft in IA Writer on my Mac, then to go sit on my sofa with a cup of tea and edit it with my Apple Pencil. Mm -hmm. And I find that that change of location, the change of the, the tactile nature of editing allows me to, to do much better work. So it is a professional tool for me, but editing text, I could use like your old five-year-old iPad Pro for something like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I use... I actually do a fair bit of, of photo editing in the mobile version of Lightroom on my iPad. Uh, if nothing else, it's really great for culling my shots, going through and, and rating them. There's a, there's a very cool quick review mode where you can basically use your thumbs to, with your left thumb, you can give it a star rating. With your right thumb, you can flag it and swipe. You can get through a lot of images really quickly so you can figure out which ones to keep and which ones, ones not to keep. 
And uh, as I'm sure I've said before, I like having the Apple Pencil if I want to do some sort of masking or, or, or drawing because I don't have a Wacom tablet or a, a, another sort of tablet connected to my computer. So I would say editing photos on my iPad has been worthwhile to have an iPad that can do that. Now, you mentioned Capture One for iPad. I haven't tried that yet. Have you? I was in the beta program, and I tried this before it was released. It's relatively limited. It doesn't have layers. It does all the things you want, like rating that you were just talking about with two thumbs and wheels, and you can adjust exposure and everything, but it doesn't really sync to Capture One. It's five bucks a month. I would see, given the price of Capture One, that this should be included in the subscription yeah. for the app. Yeah. What What do you mean it doesn't really sync to Capture One? So You have to export files with like a sidecar file and then import them into Capture One. Apparently, there's some sort of cloud syncing that's going to work or that may work, but you're going to have to pay more for the cloud storage. Mm. And I think they've made a big mistake on their model. I actually haven't looked at it since shortly after it was released, because when I saw that it wasn't included in the subscription, and I don't know what the US price is, but I pay £179 a year for it. That's a fair amount of money to pay another five bucks or five pounds, whatever it is for an iPad uh, app that really doesn't have all the features I want. I think you're limited with styles and presets, and it's not—it's a light version of the app. Now you could use it like that if you only wanted to use Capture One on the iPad. The same way you could use—I don't know—what is it, Lightroom Classic on the iPad? Uh, Lightroom Mobile. If you wanted a similar experience of what you get with Capture One on the desktop, you're not going to get it. Yeah, this is really interesting to me because just to take a little a little side route here about uh, mobile apps. You know, when when Adobe announced that they were going to go subscription all the time, uh, a lot of people balked and started looking for alternatives. And I think Adobe changing to a subscription model was probably the best thing to happen to a lot of companies like Capture One and Serif and a lot of these, which is great. You know, we love having a lot of choices and, and all of that. What's interesting is that Adobe has really shown how you can do this right. So even though, yes, you're paying a monthly subscription, which can be as low as I think $20 uh, per month is is what the basic Lightroom. The photographer's subscription, what they call it. Yeah, the photographer's subscription. The way they interact is really brilliant. Now, I will also say I benefit from having nice, fast internet access here at home. And so I know that when I come back from a trip and I import things into my laptop, into Lightroom, they're, they're going to get copied fairly quickly up to the cloud, back down to my iPad. So there's not a whole lot of lag there. But just about everything that I do in the Lightroom desktop app for Mac, i got to separate that from Lightroom Classic, uh, I can do on the iPad. And that's pretty cool. And you don't really realize how difficult that can be. And your subscription includes the cloud storage. Uh, which allows you to store all of that. And the same way that with photos on the Mac, on on a laptop, on an iPad, on an iPhone, you have access to everything. That's how it should work. That's how it should work, yeah. Um, Lightroom does have it right there. Capture One doesn't. I think the problem is that Capture One is they're more a tool for professionals. So they're concentrating on features for wedding photographers more than anything else, because that's the biggest market. Wedding photographers, they need tethered shooting, and you can do that with Capture One, which is a recent feature on the desktop version. 
I think, I don't know if you can do that on the iPad. Again, I've lost track of the features, mm -hmm. but they're not looking. Lightroom is trying to cover everyone from weekend hobbyist to professional. Right. And they have they have more resources so they can do that. Yeah, yeah. And um, Capture One is more limited and they have to be more targeted. And I, I think it just points to the fact that that doing this stuff is really hard. I mean, syncing photos and keeping them up to date and all of that, uh, you know, Apple and Adobe makes it look easy. And Lord knows we have plenty of complaints with both companies and how they implement these in some, in some ways. But you look at other companies, you look at uh, Skylum, they've been talking about doing uh, a mobile version for a while. Um, on one, they have a mobile version that is much better now than when they first released it. But I think Capture One is in the same boat where they they have to take small steps to work up to these capabilities that we now expect because you have things like Lightroom that, that just deliver this because Adobe's had a five-year head start on it. Yeah, Capture One is an interesting app because it's got a it's a bit of a cult app. One group of photographers it's popular with is people who shoot Fujifilm cameras because not all raw processors work with Fujifilm's X-Trans raw files. Yeah. Another one that's very popular, I bought it when I got my Leica Q2 monochrome because a lot of people with the Q2 monochrome use Capture One and find that it really works well with that sort of file, which I agree with. Mm -hmm. um, so they've got some niches. And in fact, they used to have uh, either cheap or free versions of the app that were specific to camera brands. So you could get a Fujifilm app, a Canon app, a Nikon app, I think. And they were the cheap ones and they finished that. That was that seemed to me a bit scattered as a strategy. I want to just talk about the cheaper iPad because this also is an option if you don't do a lot and you need an iPad. It starts at 449. So this is the what is it, the 10.9 inch, whatever the basic iPad without modifier. Mm -hmm. It starts at 449. It has USB-C. It has this sort of edge-to-edge -edge display, which doesn't mean it's edge-to-edge, -edge, but you know what I mean. More than before, definitely. More than before, definitely. Um, it's got a Touch ID button on the top. So it's basically like the current iPad mini, but bigger, right? Because the iPad mini has a Touch ID button. If you add up what you need to make this a useful tool, so the Apple Pencil, it only works with the first generation Apple Pencil, and that's 99 bucks. Since it has USB-C, you can't plug the Apple Pencil into a lightning port, so you have to buy an adapter for $9. Should be included, right? That's really cheap. And they came out with a new Magic Keyboard Folio, which is actually quite clever. The Folio, it acts as a case and a keyboard, and you can fold it back, and that's $249. So if you add all of these up, and you just get the basic 64 gigs, you're already over $800. That's pretty much the cost of a bare iPad Pro. Of course, that's what they want. They want you to say, okay, if this is 800, but then if I spent that for the iPad Pro, okay, the pencil's another 100. But yeah, that's what they're trying to do. Uh, I think as, as, as a tool for occasional use, I, the basic iPad's fine. My partner has one of them a couple years old. Um, it does what she wants to do. She doesn't do anything fancy. Uh, as, as a basic tool, even for some photography, it's probably just fine. Yeah. And also noteworthy, it still has the A14 Bionic chip. And so you think, oh, well, it's not an M chip, so it must not be uh, very good. I would say for photographers, given our audience, for photographers who want to be able to have occasional access, or maybe you're going to go out on a trip or a weekend getaway, you don't want to bring your laptop, you just want to bring your iPad, then 
you know, the, the, the basic iPad is perfect for that. It's not like you're going to run into any performance issues. Everything that's being sold now is perfectly powerful enough to run any of the applications that we've talked about. And if you just need an iPad for travel, I would recommend the iPad mini. Surprisingly, mm-hmm. it's $50 more than the new basic iPad, $449 for the new iPad and $499 for the iPad mini. I love the iPad mini. Mm-hmm. As I like to say, it's my paperback iPad. Uh, I use it a lot for reading and doing things that don't doesn't need a big display. So if you need a small, if you want something that's light, get the iPad mini. If you just need something, say you want to load your um, photos in it, right, off an SD card. It's got USB-C, so it's relatively quick. If you don't need to do any actual work, you just need a device that's small but gives you some extra storage, I think it's a really good choice. Yeah, I would, I would totally agree. I would personally find the screen a little bit too small if I'm doing any editing, but I think then I probably wouldn't really do much editing. I would do culling and reviewing and sharing. It's worth noting that we haven't said anything about the cameras on these iPads because you don't buy them for the cameras. You just, it's not a camera tool. <laughs> Although my partner's always taking photos with her iPad and I keep telling her your iPhone camera is so much better, mm-hmm. particularly because she got the hand-me-down iPhone 13 Pro. So she's got a really good camera. Oh yeah. They all have 12 megapixel cameras and the iPad Pro has a true depth camera because it does face ID. But these are the cameras of, I don't know, iPhone 12-ish, yeah. 11-ish. That sounds about not right. great. Yeah. Yeah. They are perfectly acceptable. And I can see, I was a little surprised that they made a big deal about recording in ProRes for the iPad Pro, because honestly, if you're going to do that, you'd probably use an iPhone 14 Pro and, and, and record into that. However, I think that there are plenty of use cases where you have, say, you know, people who are working on small documentaries or, uh, you know, corporate videos where something like an iPad Pro is perfectly fine. You're doing interviews. You don't need to have the absolute best glass and camera setup. And so they can just send somebody out. Uh, I think even like local news, I think local news does this a lot too. You have your your iPad, uh, put it in a little rig that can be mounted on a tripod easily. And there you have the ability to do a quick interview. I don't want to completely poo-poo the cameras, but, you know, they're they're fine. They're perfectly fine. They shoot 4K, okay, on the iPad Pro. It shoots 4K. Yeah. Now, the one thing that I, they, they had a filmmaker in this little film, so at least one guy uses an iPad to shoot a film, or at least he's an actor pretending to shoot a film <laughs> with an iPad. The thing that I find interesting is compare that to an iPhone with a very small display. When you've got an iPad, you've got a large display and you can really see what's going on. Yeah. You know, filmmakers often get additional displays for their cameras because they're too small. So as you say, for a documentary, you put that on a tripod or you've got it on a sort of a gimbal, you're really seeing what's going on. It's a lot easier to frame. Yeah. Anyway, that's enough for the iPad. You were worried that we wouldn't have enough to talk about. (laughs) And we've already gone 20 minutes talking about this. And we want to get to the um, Lightroom updates. Right, right. Well, well, this makes me laugh because if you remember from our last episode, when we were talking about the iPhone 14 Pro cameras, there was a moment where... I think it was like 14 minutes in and we we're like, okay, well, I guess that's all. We don't have any, anything more to say. And then we went and talked for another 20 or 30 minutes. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah. So in addition to the iPads being announced today, uh, Adobe is having its big Adobe Max conference. And this is when Adobe basically 
announces everything new in its entire lineup. And I've been using the Lightroom betas for a while. And so the new version of Lightroom, what's super cool about that is they've done a lot with the AI-based masking features. So last year, they added the ability to, uh, you click one button and it'll select the sky. Or even better, you click one button and it will select the subject. And it did a really good job of being able to pick out what the subject is, whether it's like one person, two people, a cat, uh, you know, it, its algorithms do a good job of figuring out what the probable subject is. Even I've had pictures where the subject is like a small person in the frame in the middle of a big field, and it just picks out that person. So that's, that's really impressive. I want to speculate on how they do this. All those photos that people put in the cloud, they must be analyzing all those photos. That's their machine learning AI thing. Yes. And they're using these to train the AI. Yeah. In fact, um, that, that's exactly how it works. And in fact, if you are uncomfortable with your Lightroom photos being analyzed, there is a way to opt out of, of, of that scanning. Uh, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes how you can get to that because I know some people just aren't aren't really comfortable with that. Um, but yeah, everything that gets uploaded to your Creative Cloud account is susceptible to scanning. And the way the AI stuff works is you just feed a whole bunch of images to the, the machine learning algorithms and they get better and better at picking out people and horses and uh, landscapes and scenes and skies and all of that. So masking is the thing that used to be you'd have to zoom in and click every single pixel. And it wasn't that long ago <laughs> that masking was really difficult and selecting things. And you have the magic brush or whatever they call it. And that works okay. But this is like a whole different level, isn't it? It is. So, so I mean, the whole point of doing this is there are times when you want to do masking. And before you were limited to either doing radial masks. So let's say I have a picture of a person and that person is a little bit in shadow. And I just want to bring up the exposure just a little bit. And so you would draw a radial mask around them. And so everything within that mask, not just the person, but like the, the edges of where they are, would get brightened. And so maybe that would be a little difficult to touch up. Uh, or you do like a, a linear gradient, which would let you say, you know, make, make the sky a little bit darker in a gradation from the top to bottom. And so, the, you know, like those were perfectly fine. And now you have more specificity. So not only can you choose a subject, it will also pick out people. And I've been really impressed by how well it's picking out the people. So for example, there was a shot that I had, I'll have to find this and again, put it in the show notes, where there were two people and one had their arm around the other. And so if you picture this, when you're looking at, at the other person, they just have an arm hanging over them. There's, there's nothing connecting the arm to the person who, who owns the arm visually. And it successfully just grabbed the arm, knowing that, okay, this probably belongs to the other person in the shot. And that's something that in the past you would have to use a brush and add that. And so it's, it's doing a really good job of that. So that's the X removal tool. <laughs> that's the X removal tool. That's to remove your X from photos. Exactly. <laughs> that's a big, there's a big business in that. Every once in a while I see like on YouTube, you know, examples of how to remove a single person from like a wedding photo or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the other part of this, so this goes a little bit uh, deeper in that 
because it can identify a person, it can also identify the parts of a person. And this is something that, that Luminar has done for a while, but this gives you a little bit more control. So you can say, I want a mask that just is the person's eyes or just their facial skin or just their lips or their teeth or their eyebrows, things that you find yourself adjusting because you just want their their skin to be brighter, for example, but you don't necessarily want to blow out the white shirt they're wearing, or you want to just add some contrast and a little bit of exposure to the eyes to make the eyes show up better. And the eyes can often be difficult because of the shadows that you can get around the eyes. Exactly, exactly. And so this these are all things that you could do by using a brush and painting in, but now literally in seconds you can make separate masks for all of these and then adjust the 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 settings for those masks so it can be a real time saver uh, especially for people who are shooting portraits but they don't necessarily need to do like a big portrait touching program like maybe you just want to like like you said make the eyes look a little bit better or make the teeth just a little bit. This is probably a popular tool for wedding photography? Uh, probably. I mean, I would say in general, uh, some, some wedding photographers will go with a lot more sophisticated stuff. But I think for, for a lot of general shots, uh, especially like let's say you have the wedding party, you've got the bride and the groom and three people on each side, you're not necessarily wanting to you go in and do heavy retouching on all of that, but maybe you just need them all to be a little bit brighter. Or one of the big problems is dark-skinned people. When the camera's exposing for light-skinned people, you may need to take the dark-skinned faces and add a little bit of exposure to them. Yeah. So I asked you earlier, can it select your glasses? Because you're sitting there with glasses on. Mm -hmm. I'm imagining a still photo of you and me clicking on your glasses. Could it select something like that? It can, yeah. So there's another new tool called object selection. And so what you would do in that case is you would use the object selection tool and you just draw a rough drawing over the thing that you want to select. And because glasses are a known object, then you can just paint roughly over that and it will select them correctly. So you're not going to have to do any cleanup. And the thing about the, this new version and this tool, it recognizes a lot of stuff. So you could select maybe a wagon in a field or a car or a horse or a duck and like a lot of different things that the machine learning has picked up and can now identify in a shot. You just paint over it and say, I, I want to get rid of this duck or this bird, or I want to take this car and I want to uh, bring down the exposure because it's, it, it's too bright, it's too distracting, that sort of thing. And again, you don't have to go in and do a lot of fine painting to try to make that selection or get frustrated and then have to send it off to Photoshop. Okay, so all of this is available in all the different versions of Lightroom, all 13 of them? <laughs> um, it's available in Lightroom Classic and Lightroom Desktop. There is a limited set in the Lightroom mobile apps. So it doesn't do like the, the different facial components that we were talking about, but it will do people and it will do uh, objects and, and that. Um, and uh, also worth noting, the the healing tool now has content-aware removal. 
So before the healing tool, if you wanted to remove something, it's it's great for like, you know, sensor spots and things like that. But now it's better about, say, you want to remove a branch, you want to remove a bird in the sky. Uh, it's It's better at doing that whereas sometimes you would have to go to Photoshop to do that that edit. Okay, Jeff, time for our snapshots. What have you got? So I'm going to actually pick something that I've had for a while that, in fact, I had forgotten to use as a snapshot. Uh, a while back, I bought a softbox uh, so that I could have something for controlling light while I'm shooting portraits. I don't shoot portraits a lot, but I do it often enough, and I think I got this on sale. And so what I ended up getting, actually, before I say that, there are so many different variations of softboxes and lighting holders and sizes. I mean, it's really all over the map. And so what I ended up with was a Godox or Godox 32-inch uh, by 32-inch, which is 80 centimeters by 80 centimeters. It's a foldable, portable softbox. And basically, it has a, a Bowens mount. So it's a, it's a standard mount where... You can attach that to a light stand. And then in terms of my flashes, I, I just have a couple of old strobes. And this Bowens mount bracket just holds it in. It's nothing very complicated at all. But the softbox has a couple of, of layers in front of it so that you're, as the name says, you're softening the light that's coming out. And for portraits that I've done over the past, uh, gosh, maybe two years, it's been that long since I bought this. Uh, it, it's been a great, fairly portable option for just having nice, soft light. So it costs $56 on Amazon, completely affordable, and I found it to be useful versus shooting with like a big umbrella. And Kirk, how about you? I have something that has nothing to do with photography, um, but it is very useful. It is a Black & Decker thermal leak detector. I saw this in an article in The Guardian. Now, we have really high energy prices over here, in particular heating oil. I'm in an old house and we heat with oil. Yeah. And we need to cut back and to not spend, you know, thousands and thousands of pounds on heating the house. So this little gizmo, it's a combination of a laser thermometer with a kind of comparison thing. So you point it at a wall, you turn it on, it gets the temperature of the wall. We set the house to around 20 degrees, that's 68, that's comfortable. And then you aim it around and you have a light that's either green, red, or blue. So green is within a range of that temperature, red is warmer and blue is colder. And it allowed us to find places in the house that are much colder than we expected. One example is we have old stone flagstones on the halls and the ground floor of the house. Lovely stones. You'd love them, the rustic and all that, the kind of things people would pay a fortune for. Underneath is an uninsulated cellar that we don't use, but that's just down there with cold air. And I found that when the walls were around 20 degrees, the floor was about 17 to 17 and a half. And that meant that there was a lot of cold coming up from the halls. And we bought some cheap Ikea rugs to cover it. And the house is a lot warmer. So we've been going around checking the, the drafts and the doors to put weather stripping and stuff. Again, nothing to do with photography, except it's got a little laser and a light. So maybe you could call that photography <laughs> in a way. Uh, but it's really useful if you need to save some money on your heating. And, you know, frankly, we should always be doing this anyway, even if energy isn't expensive, because what's the point of spending more and burning more fuel or using more electricity when we don't need it? Yeah. Uh, that could be great for your photography studio to make sure you don't have drafts when you are photographing people who 
would be uncomfortable. See, there, it's a photo tool. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Jeff, until next time. Until next time, see you. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the end. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast. 